0: Before Pastor Todd comes up to teach us this morning, we're going to spend some time reading through God's Word, the next section that we're going to be teaching through, and so there's three narratives in this uh, text, and so I'm going to have uh, John and and uh, Rennie, uh, thank you, my goodness, come and join me, and uh, we're going to read this text together, and uh, if you would turn with me in Mark chapter 4. We're gonna begin in uh, verse 35, reading all the way through chapter five. And as we read this text, may we be reminded of God's ultimate control in every scenario, in every situation in life. Let me read this for you, starting in verse 35. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him?
1: They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him, out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him any more, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and broke the shackles into pieces. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us into the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And the people came to see what had happened. Um, And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described it to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from the region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with the demons begged him that he might be with him. And And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled.
2: And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for twelve years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, If I touch even his garments, I will be made well. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside, and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him, and went in to where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat.
3: Well, thanks so much, those who read our scripture for us. Some large portions of scripture That I wanted you to have in one sitting, kind of the the weight of the narrative all in a row, kind of just settling on you. Your Bibles are open, right? Mark chapter 4. We're going to look at these narratives uh, and we're going to analyze the what of them for a moment. But at some point in the next few minutes, we're going to actually ask the why question. And I think at that point, my prayer has been this week that God's Spirit would... In a more emphatic way than he's doing already, just begin to convict some of us, prompt some of us, lead some of us, work in all of us. And as he does, I'd like to ask you to do me a favor. As he's illuminating your minds, as he's teaching you, as he's working in you, convicting you, take some good notes on the response card in the back of the chair, that little seat pocket there. Because so We want to be praying with you about how God is working your life not just this morning, but over the past few weeks, and and how He's leading you and prompting you and convicting you. So would everyone in the room do me a favor? Just look in the seat back there in front of you and just pull out the card that says either respond or connect and keep it handy there on your Bible. And as God's Spirit just kind of works in you and teaches you and at times kind of peels open your chest cavity and points at you and exposes things, just make some notes how we as your church leaders can pray for you. Into the service, I'll ask you to turn all those in, and we'll just continue to pray for you and shepherd you. Our desire is to, is to continue to be men of the Word in prayer. We've spent some time Wednesday night praying for many folks who drop by here. We're meeting tonight at our house just to pray as elders, and we'd love to have some of these cards just to be able to pray with you. Maybe you have a need, a situation, um, maybe you have an, uh, just some information change. You can put that on there as well, but I'm really more curious, how has God been working your life? This morning, previous to today, and, and we can be praying with you, okay? So you have your Bible. We've got a response card, we're going to dig into the what, but we're going to, at some point, begin to see the why, and at that point, you can just kind of understand, we're going to be getting kind of nose-to-nose with you, really face-to-face. What would God want us to know from this? So I'm anxious and excited for that. So with all those things in your lap, let's kind of dig into these three narratives. They actually contain four miracles, don't they? Four miracles in these three narratives, and... Understand as, as an introduction that really what Christ is doing in these four miracles, these three narratives, is authenticating what he has previously said. So he is by his actions confirming in his conduct what he earlier had verbally claimed. So much of Mark at the beginning is about Christ claiming to be the Messiah, the Son of God, And so his verbal claims have gone forth. He's had resistance to that. Some have believed, many have not. The religious leaders are trying now to plot to kill him to death because of his claims. And so now he's showing by his actions and by his power, by his control, that he actually is who he says he is. That's what's happening in a larger kind of contextual 30,000 foot view. And so what you see is he shows and exhibits this Power, he does some things to show he is something. Now make no mistake. what he does is no light matter here. Would you agree with that? Those four miracles are that's just not, that's just not an everyday kind of situation. It's amazing. Let me review those for you. Beginning in 4:35, we see that he has control over the natural world. He calms the storm, he stills the sea, he calms the wind. all that's taking place. It's a, it's a story most of you probably heard. The disciples thought they were perishing, but he awakes from being asleep in the storm. He just says three words, peace, and then be still. And the storm ceases. I would just remind you that in that culture, most people, whether they were followers of Christ or not, considered natural storms, such as storms on the sea or on the land, or wind issues, to be one of the greatest voices the gods could use. They looked at it as like an impossible thing to speak against or to reason with. You just can't win the battle against nature, they would think. And here now, Jesus Christ is showing, at least in their culture, I'm stronger than, bigger than, I'm in control of even what you consider to be the, the strongest voice of your gods. And he did it in three words. So we see him having control Sovereign control, mastery over the natural world. As we move further into chapter 5, we seem having control over the spiritual world. And you could even perhaps call it the, the pig world too, right? I mean, he's just got control over this man who's demon-possessed. But not only over the man, he's got control over what is inside the man, a legion of demons. I find it quite intriguing that so far in these first four chapters of Mark, there are many people who are hesitant... And some are even resistant to to admit who Jesus is. But this man who's demon-possessed has no problem knowing who's calling his name, who's coming to meet him. You see that in verse 7? He says, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? And he recognizes who Jesus is, doesn't he? Well, Jesus deals with this man, he deals with his uh, legion of demons, he deals with they're in fate, and puts them into the pigs, and then they go into the sea. He then deals with the townspeople, and here Jesus Christ is showing to have complete mastery, sovereign control over the spiritual world. And then as chapter 5 concludes, there are two narratives here, and they, they're, they're mixed together. And I think on purpose. You he starts out with this ruler who comes to him and says, Hey, my daughter's sick. Can you help heal her? She's about to die. And on the way to solve this man's problem, he's interrupted by another situation. The interruption, at least from a human angle, seems to be the reason the daughter dies, right? But I think Mark does this on purpose to show us that Christ has complete mastery and is in sovereign control of the physical world. Not only disease, but death. He deals with both in this story. The woman who had the issue of blood, of course... Reaches out and touches his garment. She's healed. By the way, he calls her out, not because he's trying to embarrass her, but I think he's making a point to the crowd that it's not just the fact that they can just touch him that heals her. Because would you admit, there's probably a lot of folks who are rubbing shoulders with Jesus, touching him. The disciples indicated it was a very crowded situation, right? When he asked, who touched me? They're like, well, how can we figure that out? There's a bunch of people around us. But he's trying to bring attention to the fact that it's faith that saves, not just an accidental rubbing shoulders with someone who's like this, has this magic potion, you know, like, oh, he's got the magic robe on. If you'll touch it, you'll be healed. He's saying that's not how this works. So he calls the woman out and says, It's your faith in me. And of course, then the people come from Jairus' household and say, Hey, don't bother. You've been interrupted. It's too late now. And he, says, no, don't worry, she's just sleeping, and they laugh at him because of that. He goes in, and then what I think is a beautiful, touching scene, he sits by her bed, and he just simply says, little girl arise." And he talks to her as if she's sleeping. In fact, in the, in the clearest, most literal translation, it'd be like if you were by your bed with your little daughter, and you just call her honey or sweetie. I mean, it's the, one of the most touching scenes of Jesus in the New Testament to this 12-year-old girl, and he just says, you can get up now. And he handles death like it's no problem, doesn't he? So, so in these four narratives, we, take, we took the large chunks. I want you to see something. There is no single arena. There's no area of your life in which Jesus Christ does not have complete sovereign control. This is every arena. Either your natural world, your spiritual world, or your physical world. I'm here to assure you, and you'll agree with this, every Part of your world is under the control of Jesus Christ. Now, I expect you to say men there, I expect you to say hallelujah. You rejoice in that. We should, right? We would agree with Paul as Colossians 1:18 says, that by him and for him all things consist. Here it is. Will you read these verses with me? Together, church. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. There's not a single arena or domain of life that's outside of the control of Jesus Christ. Not a one. The question is, why? Why is that true? And I'm glad you're all and We love this verse. We shout hallelujah. Glory to God, right? But have you ever stopped and said, but, but why is that true? And why is that good? And why is that the case? I think really this is the, the overall textual point of lumping all of these narratives together. We could go through them individually Arrive at the same conclusion. We could take four weeks and do that. and be very good for us. Healthy. I don't doubt that at all. But sometimes we can, uh, it would be a little repetitive. And if we just lump them all together, we begin to see what Mark, the author here, under the Spirit's inspiration is after. He's trying to show us something. There's not a single domain of our life outside of Christ's control. And why is that necessarily good for us? Because once we see that nothing's outside of his control, once we understand that, that Christ is in ultimate control of everything, we begin to realize, oh, this one named Jesus, this one who's the Christ, he must be God. You see, the real point of Christ's ultimate control is for you to see his ultimate identity. That's what Mark is showing here let me prove that to you because here's what we tend to do, and I want you to have to balance two things this morning. We tend to see stories like this and these narratives and these wonderful exhibitions of Christ's power, and they're good and they're they're right for us to see, but we tend to to read them and think only about the benefits of them. Wow, look how they solved this problem. Look how he rescued this person, and I'm not saying that's bad or negative. But I will say this, if that's all we see, it's limited because the signs, the wonders, the powers were designed to point to who he was first. They were to authenticate his claims. I want to prove this to you in each of the four narratives. And I can textually show you in the first three without any problem. The fourth one, we're missing the key word, but I think I can show it to you with another word. And so I'll contend with you. That in every case, watch this, in every case of these narratives in which we see Christ in control of every domain of life, when the situation was solved, they were more fearful of who Jesus was than what they actually needed him to do at the beginning. I don't want to mince those words. I don't want to lessen the weight of it. I want you to hear what I'm saying to you. The text will show us That when Jesus did what he did, and it was amazing and powerful, they were more amazed, though, at who was in the room than with what they needed him to do at the beginning. In other words, the thing that made them stress at the beginning, like, wow, man, we're we're in a mess. We need help. And then they realized who it was helping them. they're like, man, who is this guy? Let me show you what I mean. It's quite intriguing. First narrative, look at verse 41. Just when they were afraid of the storm, they're thinking Christ does not care, just at that moment when he, he stills the sea and questions their faith, look at verse 41. They were filled with great fear. Now, why would they be filled with fear if the storm just ceased? You ever thought about that? Like, man, there's no reason to be afraid now. I think why they're afraid because they were asking themselves, who in the world's in the boat with us? Who is this man? They ask this question, don't they? That even the wind and the sea obey him. I love the disciples here. You know why? Because they had such an incredibly honest and transparent all of Jesus. Not in what he did only, but in who he was. Because here's here's what their minds are thinking. This man's flesh and blood. He's walking with us. He's teaching us. And yet he's doing things only God can do. Being God is with us. And man, that sent them trembling. That sent them to their knees. That sent them wondering. Are, are you following this? They were more afraid of that than they were earlier of the storm that thought that was going to kill them. And that's a proper fear of God. Let's go to narrative number two. Jesus Christ rescues and delivers the demon-possessed man. The townspeople hear of it and also of the pigs. And they see the man, in verse 15, sitting there clothed and in his right mind. In other words, we saw the naked man in the graveyard. We saw how no one could contain him. No one could control him. There were no chains strong enough to bind him. But now he's sitting there. He's clothed in his right mind. Look at the next phrase. And they were what? Say it, church. Afraid. They were so afraid. I think that's odd because I would be afraid of the naked guy in the tombstone area, wouldn't you? The guy that you couldn't chain, the man that you couldn't control. Like I'm afraid of that guy, but if he's sitting there clothed in his right mind, if things are better, I'm like, "Whoo, thank you." They're now afraid. The townspeople are afraid. Why? Because they just watched a guy, not only probably diminish their economy by killing 2,000 pigs, (laughs) but tame the town freak. They were so afraid that the Bible says they begged Jesus to depart from their region. I I hope you're getting this. They were more afraid of Jesus staying in their town than they were a man who previously was naked and demonic Think about that. They were grasping, man. This 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 guy that's flesh and blood that's healing people. That's he's the talk of the area. Oh no, it's just not a guy. This is God with us, and it terrified them. Narrative three. It begins with Jairus' story, but the interruption is actually how I see narrative three. And after she touches the garment of Jesus, he calls her out. He wants to know who touched me. And notice what verse 33 says. In the middle of this crowd, it says that the woman, knowing what had happened, came in, say at church, with me, fear and trembling. She knew, I believe personally, that this was the Son of God, but then he wanted to showcase her faith in the right way, and she knows, I'm going to approach this one once I touched his garment, I felt my illness leave, my disease dried up. I'm gonna meet him face to face, I'm gonna see him. She was afraid and trembled. It's interesting, isn't it? What happened to her emotions, what she sensed when she realized she's gonna come face to face with God. And then we kick back into narrative four, which is Jairus. They're all now. Um, fearful that he's too late he gets to the house and he goes in and he raises the little girl from the dead and i like verse 42 and here's the word i want to show you the word fear is not in their reaction but there's even a better word perhaps look at verse 42 they were immediately say it with me overcome with amazement it doesn't say they just were amazed what does it say church that their amazement overcame something what their current emotion. So here they were in this room where this little girl was sick, but because Jesus was late, now she's dead. Thanks a lot, Jesus. So you got that going on, plus the emotions of all the, the family ties, and, and you know, someone 12 years old dying. Like this had to be a very emotional scene. But they were so amazed that Jesus would raise her from the dead that, that all of that amazement overcame all the previous emotion. That's why I say to you, I I think in every case, in all four narratives, every single person who saw Jesus do what he did, they were more amazed with what this meant about who he was than they were earlier about the mess they were in. Whether it was a storm, in part here, whether it was a storm, a disease, a death, their physical circumstances could not rival their spiritual understanding. You mean God is with us. And how do they realize that? Because Jesus, as a man, was doing what only God could do. He was healing, delivering, restoring, resurrecting. He was showing control over every single arena of life, natural, spiritual, and physical. Only God has that. And they're realizing, this is the one in our midst. And suddenly, they weren't afraid of the storm, the death, the disease. They were rightfully terrified that God was with them. When I read that, it made me... It made me realize, that, just to be very transparent with you, there's very little of that often in the American church. Sometimes we go through the motions. We just kind of routinely participate and partake. We take sin way too lightly. We split our families, sin against our wives and husbands. We don't fight for joy, we give in to trials, we blame God. We worship with no passion. We put the Bible on the shelf, we never spend time praying or interceding for people. Our life is just this routine of the American dream, with air quotes. And if God were to show up in the middle of that American nightmare, and do for you incredible works, would you even know it? Would you be so awed that God showed up that what the problem was earlier would not even be a stress point? You'd be more terrified that God is in the middle of your life. It scares me how little fear of God most of us have. And that's why I say to you, the point of these narratives isn't about the benefits Christ brings to the situation, even though that's good. So do you hear my tension? I'm not at all denying or trying to minimize the power of God on display. Amen. They needed rescue. In fact, if you read the four narratives again, the three uh, miracles, each one has certain words they use that describe that, that, that they were at a point where nobody could do anything. The boat was already filling with water. No one could chain the, the demon-possessed man. The girl had died. The woman had been to all the doctors, used her money. So nothing could be done. Only Jesus could solve it. I agree with that and affirm that. Amen, and you should too. But the point of that is not to say, oh, well, let's just use Jesus to get our way, to solve our problems. The point is to see that only, that if only Jesus can do that, he must be God. And that should stir in us an awe and a reverence that's, that's terrifying and yet at the same time satisfying. Because a God this powerful must love us with a fierce love. And he must be the only one who could rescue us from our eternal predicament. He's the only one who can solve our sin problem. He's the only one who can forgive. So where else would we turn? And watch this. When that occurs, and this is what I think, and I, I call it an ironic theological twist when that occurs you're not as concerned about what jesus can do for you then you see initially we're like man I, I i can't solve anything i need help god help me and then suddenly when jesus begins to show himself strong on your behalf you realize only god could do this and so you believe in jesus not because he did something for you because you're so in awe of him you realize jesus is god he's beautiful not just useful But when you suddenly are believing in that fashion, God then does for you things. And even when he does it, you're not upset about it because you're just so thankful There's a God this powerful that loves you and can rescue you. It's this odd balance we have to keep. We love his benefits, but the benefits are not the only reason we love him. We love him because the benefits show us he's actually beautiful. In fact, I would say to you this, if the benefits of Christ are the only reason that you follow Jesus, you're probably not really born again. You're probably not genuinely saved. Here's why I say that to you. Just serving Christ, or just just following Christ, just loving Him because He does things for you is actually selfish. It's, It's contaminated It's missing the mark of true belief. In fact, Paul said this in Romans, that anyone who's saved must confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, we do believe in what he did, correct? He died for us. He rose again. He lived a perfect life that we couldn't live. All those things he just did are true, but he's only able to do them because he is God. And so, to be saved, one must confess what? That Jesus is Lord. They must be able to foundationally agree to something about who he is, which enables him to do what he did. So if all you care about is the what he did part, like, yeah, man, I just went out of hell, dude. Like, whatever that guy's name is, you know, just I'll, I'll sign there, I'll sign the card, I'll bend the knee, I'll pray the prayer, yeah, just, just count me in if that's what it takes. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think that's legit. Because you're just seeking the benefits It's contaminated by a root of selfishness and sin. True salvation occurs when we see not just the benefits, but the beauty of who he is. And the glory of the treasure of Christ is so wonderful in our eyes that we would, if it were a treasure in a field, we would sell everything we have and go and purchase the field. You see, True conversion is when you're willing to accept the loss of all things for the sake of Christ, not to gain everything to rescue you at a moment's notice. So I want to ask you a question: Do you know the God of Mark four thirty-five to five forty-three? Do you know the God that is so terrifying, so consuming? that he can if he cho- chooses to he could solve fix anything he's in control of every domain of life he could that's how powerful he is but he's also so beautiful that if he doesn't it doesn't sway your confidence in him because you've seen him he's god and so you believe who he is first This is actually the realization, I think, of, of these four narratives, in, uh, these four miracles in these three narratives. It's that his ultimate control is so that we'll know his ultimate identity. Remember, I told you the why question is the most important one here? And this is where I want to kind of press on you. I want to nudge you here. We took this large chunk on purpose because I want you to ask yourself do I know this? Jesus? Do I know this God? Do I believe that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh? And am I embracing his beauty as to who he is first and foremost? And then a willing recipient of his benefits? Yes. But is his identity First and foremost, settled in your mind that Jesus Christ is God, the Savior of the world. I would remind you that to deny that, to resist that, is to not be born again. In fact, let me just show you exactly this from John's perspective. The simple realization that Christ's works were to prove his identity and that believing who he is is really the the, the most important, the fundamental, the beginning understanding of what it means to be saved. Look what John said here. He said that Jesus did many signs in the presence of his disciples. Many of them are not even written in the books. So the ones you read about in Mark, they're, they're, they're true, they're historical. But they're not the only thing he did. But these are written in John and Matthew, Luke and John. Read with me, would you church? So that you may believe, watch this, that Jesus is the Christ The son of God. All the the works were to lead you to to see his worth. All of the benefits were designed for you to, to see the beauty of who he is. All of his power was to point to the person of who he is. And that, watch this next phrase, by believing you may have life in his name. Believing what? Not just that some guy can do powerful things. But that the man who is doing these powerful things is God. He's the Christ, the long-awaited Messiah. He's the Son of God. Church, are you grasping this? It is, it is important and it matters what you believe about Jesus. And until you believe that Jesus is God, the Christ you do not have life in his name. So this morning, why have we read these four miracles, these three longer passages? Why have we taken them as a chunk, not individually? Because I want you to see that in every area of life, Jesus the Christ displayed complete control over everything. Why? Not so you could be amazed at only his power, but so that you could be amazed at his person, who he is, and that you would say, wow, Jesus is God. And the moment that happens in your life, you have life in his name. Can I say to you in much vulnerability, but with with extreme courage. There are many in churches like ours, all across Ankeny and Des Moines, who've one year one day signed a card, said a prayer have glibly just said, yeah, I'll I'll agree to that. And they no more believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, risen from the dead, full of power and glory and majesty and might than, than they do some other factor. They're not genuinely born again. They don't have life in His name. They've got life in their name. And so they keep walking in this unrepentant sin. They're just... They're like the man who has the demon still. They can't shake their chains. They only want Christ for the benefits. And they're frustrated he doesn't give them what they want over and over. What's up with you, God? They're the center of their universe. That's not true conversion. I call you this morning to analyze, to assess your spiritual condition and ask this question. Why are you following Jesus? Is it just for the benefits? If that's all it's for, I would highly recommend you take a long, hard look at your spiritual condition. It may be that you are actually still dead in your sins. And the Holy Spirit's not awakened your eyes to the beauty of Christ. All you're consumed with is the benefits. But life in his name comes when we let the benefits lead us to the beauty. It's not to minimize Or to to distract from what he's done for us. But all of what he's done for us, both then and now, are to lead us to who he is. He is the son of God. That's when life begins to change. See, here's more of this ironic theological twist. None of us really come to God. At least we shouldn't. I don't think anyone genuinely does. No one genuinely, ultimately comes to God because of what God can do for them. We come to God because of who he is. Hebrews even says this, that those who come to to God must believe that he is. So there's this sense in which we believe that Jesus is the Christ. And because we know that only God can save, then we say, wow, if Jesus is the Christ, only God can save. He's God. Yes, I believe Jesus Christ is God. And then he does for us what we need done. See, that's the twist. It's so odd. We don't come for him to do something for us only. But when we come to him, guess what? He does something for us. So we have to kind of hold these in this odd balancing act. And so here's even a fuller expression of this take-home realization. Christ has ultimate control, yes, so that you would know his ultimate identity. And when that occurs, then you do experience ultimate change. But you can't flip these around. You can't say, hey, he's my 911 call. He's my quick ATM. He's, He's my exit out of this mess. He's my fire escape. I don't care really who you are. All I need to believe about you, just just kind of give me a quick exit from the mess. Doesn't work. But when you believe that Jesus, because of his ultimate control, is God. And then that terrifies you to the point that you realize, then what I really need is everything he can do. I need God. Then God does for you the very thing that you need. But if you come just for what you need, be careful. You gotta come for who he is. So I'm kind of bring you into my own wrestling match here. This kind of grappling situation. I'm asking you to wrestle this with me. It, it reminds me of the story of the rancher and the farmer. Some of you have heard it. I tell it quite often. I like the story, but there's many new people here, so perhaps you haven't heard it. But it's the story of the rancher and the farmer. The farmer grew carrots, and the rancher raised horses. And they both lived in the kingdom of a king who was very generous and very good. One day, the carrot farmer just grew a beautifully big carrot. And so he brought it to the king. And he said, King, I, I just want to bring you this carrot. Uh, I just want you to have it. You're a great king. You're generous and loving. And so here, just have the best carrot I could grow. The king was so overjoyed by that. He just said, You know what? I've got some more land just to the east of your farm. Just take it and farm it. Have more because you're such a good, humble farmer. Just take it, grow some more carrots. I love what you're doing. The carrot farmer said, thank you so much. I'll do exactly that. Well, the the rancher who raised horses heard that. He was kind of watching. He saw that. He said, man, if he got more land just for one really good carrot, what would I get if I gave a really nice horse? So he goes back, and he grooms his horses, and he takes his best horse to the king. He says, oh, king, you're so generous. I love you so much. I just want to you know, kind of give you this gift of a horse, best I got. The king says, thank you so much. And he pauses. He doesn't say anything else. And so the, the rancher's like, <clears throat> yeah, well, I just want you to know, I, best horse I got, there you go. He's kind of waiting for the, let me give you something, right? The king doesn't say it. So after a while, he just kind of turns around and says, okay, and so he started to walk back, and the king says, Oh, one thing, Mr. Rancher. He said, Remember the carrot farmer? He said, Yes, yes, I do. He's thinking, here it is, right? He says, The the carrot farmer gave me the carrot. You gave yourself the horse. That's how it is with God. You come with a secondary, selfish agenda. He will not be leveraged. He'll not be cornered or manipulated. That's why this is a a set of narratives that we must understand. It's not just about what he does, though we're thankful for what he does. It's to reveal who he is. And when you grasp who Jesus is, that's the beginning point of understanding true salvation. And that's when God will suddenly begin to do for you what only God can do for you. But you got to come for who he is. you got to personalize it. Is this what you believe about Jesus? That he's God. And that only Jesus, as God, can do what needs to be done in your life. If you're wondering if Jesus can really change things and change people, you're saying, well, these are just four. Is this just a bright spot in his 33 years? I want to kind of land this plane. I want to head to the home stretch by reading you just two more narratives that show that who he is is really the underneath the fundamental concept you've got to grasp and that his benefits can lead you to see his beauty, yes, But seeing his beauty, that he's not just useful, but he's beautiful, that he's he's the son of God, he's the Christ, really is the beginning point, the essence of what it means to believe and to follow. That's how we have life in his name. I'll read you just two more quick narratives. One is about his first coming. It's Calvary. It's the cross. And I want you to notice especially in this narrative... And the one from his second coming we'll see in a minute in Revelation. How, all, how both of these narratives each contain elements of those three worlds. The natural world, the physical world, and the spiritual world. I want you to notice in these, two, in these two narratives how all three are kind of alluded to and mentioned. And how he has control over both and what they lead to. Watch this. Here's Mark 15. The crucifixion of Jesus. When the sixth hour had come. This is verse Verse 33. There was darkness over the whole land. It's a natural situation, right? He's showing control. There was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine. They put it on a reed and they gave it to him to drink. And they said... Hey, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. That's when he said, it is finished. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Here's a spiritual and physical result of Jesus being the Son of God. It went from the top to the bottom. And when the centurion, who stood facing Jesus, saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said... Truly this man was the son of God. The centurion didn't see all the works that God and Jesus had done at the crucifixion and say, Man, that's some pretty, pretty uh, some great benefits. I think I'll just sign on. He realized who Jesus was when he saw Christ and God's control over every domain. That happened in his first coming at the apex of his life. When he comes again, let me read for you the kind of change he will bring as the Son of God. This is Revelation 21. What a weighty, glorious text this is, this passage. John writes that he saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven, the first earth had passed away. The sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, He will dwell with them. They'll be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Here's the kingdom consummated. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning. There's no more crying. You see all the physical things that are going to be changed and pass away? There's no more pain. The former things have passed away. Praise God for Jesus. Amen. When he comes again, things will be changed because he has ultimate control over the natural, physical, and spiritual worlds. Verse 5 says that he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And to the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Isn't that interesting? That if you want to experience this kind of ultimate Promised permanent change you got to have the water of life that Christ promises and it comes without payment in other words you can't earn it it comes by believing that Jesus is the Christ and that in his first coming when he died on the cross he displayed all the power necessary to make everything new when he comes again he will do exactly this once and for all He says, the one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God. He will be my son. See the identity there? We know who he is. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Todd, why do you end on that note? That's so discouraging. Hey, back off a little bit. You're missing the point. What you believe about Jesus matters eternally. And you can shake off what I said this morning. You can pretend it doesn't matter. You can think it's not important. But there will be a day coming when Christ returns and he makes all things new that he will ask, what do you believe about me? And if he's just an, any other Joe to you, if he's just some guy that could solve your immediate problems, he's just the kind of guy who has the power and the benefits to make your life easier, but you've never believed that he's truly the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, the God-man who mediates for our sin. If you've never believed that, the Bible says the end result is the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, the second death. That's why I implore you, I plead with you to believe in the name of the Son of God, Jesus the Christ. It will matter for eternity. How do I know he's the Christ? Because he did only what God could do. He showed complete control over the entire natural world, the spiritual world, and the physical world. So don't look at the record, the acts of Jesus, and say, well, who was he? I'll tell you was. He was God among us. May that terrify you and satisfy you to the point that you believe and have life in his name.
2: We hope you enjoyed today's message. For more messages, visit firstfamily.church forward slash sermons or subscribe to our podcast feed. Thanks for listening.